Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. A couple of weeks ago, when I announced this show would be coming to an end, I told you we'd spend the last few shows looking at the political challenges ahead, to understand their root causes, and to understand how they're being addressed or ignored. Today, we'll hear from a few of the heroes of the 2020 election, the officials and volunteers who worked tirelessly to protect the integrity of our elections. They worked through a global health crisis that dramatically altered the way we cast votes in this country, and a plague of disinformation that sought to undermine American confidence in democracy itself. But we begin with a conversation about diversity and political journalism. When I first started reporting on politics, and well, sometimes I feel super, super old, it wasn't that long ago, I was often the lone woman in the room. There was sometimes a boys club feel to political coverage. Girls were allowed, but they had to be willing to adapt to the already established culture. But the lack of reporters of color was even more striking. Look through those press scrums from the 1980s and 90s, even the early 2000s, and you see very few brown and black faces. Of course, a lot has changed in recent years, and newsrooms have had to adapt. This year, we saw a lot of reporters of color on our TV. We listened to them in podcasts, on radio shows, and read their bylines in the nation's top newspapers. Ignoring issues of systemic racism is no longer possible. 2020 taught us that. In fact, race and racism and our national reckoning are rightly centered in the national conversation. So what does all of this mean for how we discuss politics and policy? For that, I turn to Aaron Haynes, co-founder and editor-at-large for the 19th, Tolu Olunuripa, national political reporter for The Washington Post, and Maya King, political reporter at Politico. Over the last, particularly the last two years, Um, we've really been able to see and learn the value um, and the huge platform that Black voters have, not just as a political force, but an organizing organizing force. Mm. Um, Every campaign that I spoke to on the primary, um, on the campaign trail, and I'm sure um, Tolu and Aaron can attest to this, really underlined the value of Black voters, especially in 2018 and in 2019, when things were really starting to kick up on the campaign. And then we had um, this thing called the coronavirus kind of step into the scene, and that totally changed the direction of the political campaign. But it didn't necessarily change, at least for me and my reporting on race and demographics, um, the direction of my reporting in that I was still focusing on the impact and disproportionate impact of these policies and of these major events on Black communities. Taking it even further, we had the George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor um, killings at the hands of police that spurned international protest, again, against racial inequities and against police violence. And it was just made very clear to me um, time and time again of just the the giant value and platform um, that Black communities have, specifically as it relates to American politics. And so covering all of that also um, as as a Black woman, 
was truly, um, it required me to really challenge my own uh, understandings of, of the community that I also belong to, which was great for me as a journalist to be able to still learn a lot of new things and, and be able to tell stories that hadn't been told before, um, but was also equally uh, very difficult to be able to not only understand these and see these things happening in real time, but also see how they were impacting those closest to me in my community and in my family. And that in itself was also informing my reporting. So I say all that to say it was, really has been um, a, 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 a truly remarkable um, 18 months. And as it relates to politics and political reporting, I mean, covering this as, as a Black person, um, it, again, has truly been uh, very mu- as equally fulfilling as it has been challenging. Tolu, how would you describe your experience? Yeah, I think Maya covered it actually really, really well. Um, we uh, all, as reporters, try to figure out how to tell the story of what's happening in the country and even globally. And there's such a diverse experience based on where you're from, based on what kinds of community you live in. And it's important as reporters to tell the full story, especially here in, in America, to make sure that everyone's story gets told and gets told with the appropriate context and gets the appropriate weight and attention uh, that's that's needed. And you know, for a large part of our history, you know, certain communities were overlooked, their stories were not told, or their stories were told in stereotypical ways or ways that did not uh, appreciate the full the fullness of those cultures and communities. And I think having a more diverse press corps is a big part of trying to tell those stories in the appropriate way with the appropriate amount of cultural recognition of uh, what those communities are going through. And as Maya said, as we've uh, faced the past couple of years of you know turbulence, especially when it comes to racial issues in the country, it's important to have voices that understand what a lot of these communities have been going through that just has not been getting the coverage or has not been getting the focus um, that it's appropriate uh, over the past several decades. And now that the country is turning its attention to these issues, it's important that these voices are elevated. It's important that you know people who are now ready to tell their stories to a, a broader audience uh, get to do so without having them filtered in a through a negative lens as we've seen so often in the past. So I do feel you know, some level of responsibility to make sure that I'm telling those broad stories in, in an appropriate way and that I'm giving voice to um, people and communities that have been overlooked for, for far too long. Um, it's, a, it's a weighty responsibility. It's difficult. In addition to the difficulties of just being a reporter generally, it's an added responsibility that, uh, that I think we have to make sure that we are representing um, people who may have skepticism towards the media, may feel like in the past, their stories were misinterpreted or not um, given the right amount of attention. Um, so now that people are starting to focus on these issues, whether it's income inequality, police brutality, police harassment, that those stories are told with the, the, the right level of nuance. And uh, there is definitely some high level of responsibility to make sure we're doing that well, make sure that we are reporting for the broad community, but that we're doing it in a nuanced way. Um, and it's all of our responsibilities, but I think there's a special responsibility on people who have experience with these communities, who have maybe grown up in these communities, who may understand some of the nuance better than than, um, than other reporters to make sure that uh, we're doing our part to provide that level of context and nuance so that those stories are told in a way that um, enlightens us all. Aaron, you have the unique uh, 
position that you also started <laughs> a news organization in this moment and one that focused specifically on reflecting racial, ideological, socioeconomic, gender diversity of American voters. Um, talk about that experience and compare it to, you know, your experiences that you had in traditional newsrooms. You came most immediately from the AP. Sure. And let me also just say, though, how great it is to be in conversation with my colleagues who mm. are growing in number, right. uh, especially in terms of visibility and representation, because that absolutely matters. But look, yes, I I was one of the five women who helped to start the 19th, which is a nonprofit independent newsroom that is at the intersection of gender policy and politics because we wanted to change the narrative around uh, the majority of the U.S. electorate, namely women, uh, but also marginalized folks uh, in this country. And I'm somebody who spent uh, much of my career covering uh, issues of race, uh, and 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 I would say uh, by default gender, uh, because I do tend to uh, see my uh, a lot of my work through uh, my own lived experience as a black woman, uh, but but probably focused a lot more on uh, my blackness than my womanhood, honestly, mm -hmm. before I came to the 19th, and so. I think early on in my career, I thought I was going to be covering kind of the vestiges of, of uh, racism and um, the progress of the gains that had been made kind of since the civil rights movement. Uh, but but I now find myself uh, really focused on uh, some of the losses and the retrenchment of, of racism uh, in this country, uh, in addition to uh, some of the continued progress uh, that Black Americans have made. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, starting this newsroom really was about changing the conversation around gender, yes, but also, frankly, around uh, race in this country, especially as, as it uh, pertains to our politics. And, you know, last year, we certainly did not envision starting a newsroom uh, in, the, in the middle of a pandemic, but, <laughs> but we absolutely sat at the intersection of everything. And I, and I think in 2020, uh, the country and, and our industry saw what, what a lot of Black journalists and Black America have long known, which is that race is the unfinished business of our democracy and the story of our time. And, you know, as a Black journalist, as, as uh, Tolu and, and Maya have said, uh, you know, we uh, get to chronicle the highs and the lows of, of, of the Black experience uh, in this country. And those were certainly uh, on display last year. Uh, black people uh, continuing to be disproportionately affected in yet another facet of American life uh, with the pandemic from both a public health and economic perspective, uh, a national reckoning on race that, that came even in the midst of a global public health crisis, uh, and, and yet, uh, you know, an election in which Black voters would not be denied, even in the midst of a pandemic, to vote in record numbers and to help elect uh, a Black woman as the second most powerful person in the country for the first time in our history. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, others have talked about kind of um, bringing our lived experience to the work. Uh, I'm somebody who has always believed that that is uh, our, an asset uh, that Black journalists have, uh, not a bias, uh, if not a superpower, frankly, uh, because we see stories that, that other folks don't necessarily see. We are in conversation with our family members, our friends, you know, our fr you know, people from college, you name it, uh, talking about what it means to be um, Black in America in this moment. And you know, as, but as journalists more broadly, you know, our mission is to leave behind the most honest and accurate record of who and where we are as a country. And, and, and if we are not telling the truth about race in public, um, you know, I, I know that, that, that we are not doing that. Uh, we are not doing our job as journalists, period, uh, much less as Black journalists more specifically. 
Well, talk about that for a minute, too, about bringing the lived experience and then the pressure on being an quote unquote, objective journalist, right? You're supposed to be dispassionate. You're supposed to be able to detach yourself from what you're covering, which also seems very unrealistic, number one. And number two, like something that people who are white and covering politics, well, of course, that is a much easier experience for them than it is for others. Well, you know, I don't know, Amy, I would actually push back on that. I, okay. I, objectively speaking, race is a matter of fact, uh, a matter of, of fact in, uh, in, in terms of life in the United States. And so, you know, if, we're, if, if, if we can agree upon if we can agree upon that, that that fact of life in America, uh, then I think uh, we can begin to have a conversation about exactly what objectivity means. Like I said, the, the goal here is is honesty and accuracy. Right. And I think that because race has been, um, you know, so polarizing uh, in this country because of, of, of the original sin of slavery, the default setting for some people is that, you know, to talk about race is to invite bias into. Exactly. Um, Doesn't that seem like it's we're still there? Like, do you feel like we've actually gotten uh, past that? I, I don't. Well, I mean, well, I still well, feel like I'm, it's I'm, like, oh, I'm that's gonna, not OK to talk about. That's that's polarizing. That's divisive. Let's not talk ab- well, about that. in. Have- uh, and I, and I would say, you know, when 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 I'm when I am met with that reaction, uh, you know, that tells me uh, more about the journalist than it does mm-hmm. about wh- whatever whatever the story is. And 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 I think too, you know, what we've come to learn certainly in the last four years, if not uh, before that, is that more folks, white Americans, and that includes white Americans in newsrooms, are starting to really think about what it means to be a white person in America. Mm-hmm. And the idea of whiteness as part of our identity politics, that's real. That's a thing. And that is a, that is a journalistic aspect of, of, of our job that is worth being explored, right? But because white Americans and, and, and by default white journalists are not thinking about these issues, honestly, nearly as much as black people and black journalists think about race, uh, they are not as comfortable talking about it. Yeah. They are not as used to using that muscle and, and it is a muscle, honestly. I mean, like the more yep. you use it, the, the more comfortable you get with it, the better you get at it. And so I would just encourage, uh, you know, white journalists who are, are coming to realize uh, the role that, that race plays not only in our politics, but in our society more broadly uh, to, to get rid of these kind of traditional notions of objectivity, which were, you know, developed and defined largely by, uh, you know, white right. male gatekeepers. And uh, and and to really ask yourself, I mean, being dispassionate about it means taking these feelings out of writing about race and really focusing on the facts of writing about race and 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 um, and journalism that focuses on those facts. And so, if we do that, then you know, I, I think that we are living up to our journalistic mission. Tola, I want to get to that issue too of facts. And you know, you covered the White House, you covered the Trump campaign back in. 2016, journalists were very uncomfortable calling what Donald Trump was doing or saying racist. And by the time of of when he was sworn in as president and then as we went into the campaign, newspapers, including yours, I'm just going to read a Washington Post headline from the summer of 2020 was Trump's push to amplify racism unnerves Republicans who have long enabled him. Can you talk about what happened, What, where that change, that switch seemed to be flipped from being uncomfortable, as Aaron was discussing with talking about race, it was in a 
quote unquote, dispassionate way versus calling out what was right in front of us all along? Yeah, I think it was sort of an industry-wide and a paper-wide reckoning, reckoning with what Aaron was talking about, the importance of covering this issue, covering the issue of race without kid gloves, covering it in a fact-based manner. And the fact is that many of the things that the president was saying, the things that he was doing, the political strategy that he was employing were racist. They were racially offensive, they were racially insensitive, and they were racist. They were essentially pushes and efforts to um, denigrate specific communities, pushes to identify with his own whiteness and to get his supporters to see their whiteness as a, a form of privilege that they didn't want to let go and to, to rile up his quote unquote base with, you know, sometimes racist dog whistles and sometimes racist bullhorns. And there were so many examples. One that comes to mind is when the president told for congresswomen of color to go back to their countries, even though they were uh, American citizens and the vast majority of them were actually born in, in this country and had no other country to go back to. So uh, it's, it was very clear when the president started doing things like that, and the, the examples piled up and the, 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 the newspaper and, and the top leaders at, at the newspaper started to realize that, you know, we cannot beat around the bush. We have to do a service to our readers by calling things as they are even though it may be uncomfortable for, for our readers or may be uncomfortable for the broader public to think of the president of the United States as someone who traffics in racist language and politics. But that was what was happening. And it was important for us to be true to the moment, to uh, be fact-based and to be um, unsparing in our coverage of the way the president was was behaving. And I think that was something that ended up becoming a service to to our readers because it was important for them to know that this was what was happening in the country. The country is, uh, as Aaron said, still trying to work on this unfinished business of racial uh, inequality and racial sensitivity. And it is something that is difficult to talk about. It is difficult to process. It is a, a challenge that this country has faced for uh, the better part of two centuries. And it continues to be a challenge that we're facing. And it's important for us in the media to focus on on the issues that are continuing to face the country without papering over them or making it seem like all of those issues have been solved or that all of the problems that, that, that you know, marred the history of this country no longer affect, um, you know, a large portion of the people in the country. In fact, almost everyone in the country is touched by race in one way or the other. So I think it was important for us to call this for, for what it was and to level with our readers, level with our audience uh, about what was happening in the country. And that and so, sometimes it required us to use language that may be difficult to, to read or difficult to process, but language that reflected the reality of what we're living in, which is a very difficult time. And a Amy, I just want to, yeah. I just want to echo and, and, and just put a pin in something that Tulu was saying just now. And it, the idea that, that we saw, you know, racism reemerging, you know, in, in, in the last four years, black journalists saw this, they said this, and sometimes they were criticized for trying to point this out in newsrooms. And, and we can't we can't lose sight of that because I, I think it's important for our for our political journalism coverage going forward and, and our and our coverage of, of our country going forward. I can think back to, you know, the 2016 campaign when we saw, uh, you know, that there was um, racism happening at some of you know these make america great again rallies that was in the air that was in the atmosphere of, of of some of these rallies and that is not to suggest that all you know that everyone that voted for for uh former president trump was a racist but racism was certainly a part of the equation 
and, and that was something that was emboldened and enabled. It is a fact. You know, our federal government has found white nationalism, white power is, is a national domestic terrorism threat. You know, that's not, you know, a black journalist saying that in a newsroom. Mm-hmm. That, that, is, that is something that our own government has, has found to be true. And so saying those things, uh, even though, to Tulu's point, they may make some people uncomfortable, right? Because they're, they, they may see some of these folks, some of these um, stories, and, and, you know, maybe their lived experience uh, is, is, is um, you know, similar uh, to, you know, they, they know somebody who maybe has, has uh, you know, has, has reflected some of these views, or, uh, you know, that they want to, you know, maybe try to empathize with, with folks that, that or, or try to understand better, but it, it, it really is important to understand the dynamics of race and politics. And, and I think that that is something that, that journalists of color who are covering politics are, are definitely uniquely positioned to do. And, and I hope that it is something that more white journalists who cover politics get more comfortable doing because you cannot eat, you know, just because, um, you know, former President Trump is no longer in office. That that does not mean that uh, the intersection of race and politics is is no longer with us. Just as when the first black president, Barack Obama, right. left office, we certainly were very far from being post-racial. If anything, we are in a hyper-racial America, and 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 that um, means that we have an obligation to cover that. That's a great segue, then, Maya, to you to sort of ask about where we go from here and what your expectations are going forward. You know, as Aaron pointed out, okay, Donald Trump's not there sort of fanning the flames every single day like we saw for the last four years. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't cover in the, the with the same in, in, intentionality these issues uh, of race. And what do you think the commitment is as you're seeing your newsroom and, and others evolve at this time to, to doing so? Well, first, um, I would argue that now, especially this year, if not the next four years, uh, make the story of race and politics as important as they've almost ever been. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got a bill on reparations on the Hill within the first hundred days of a presidential administration. I'm not sure if that's ever happened before. And then even on top of that, Communities of color that showed out in mass, that showed up to the polls in mass in the midst of a public health crisis and an international reckoning on race are looking to this particular White House and saying, we need you to deliver for us. And even more specifically, Black communities are looking to this White House with a Black and South Asian vice president, a historically diverse uh, presidential cabinet, a historically diverse Congress waiting for policies that will specifically positively impact their communities, saying, we've delivered for you, please deliver for us. And so I know for the next 12 months to the next four years, that's exactly what I'm looking at. I mean, that's all that I'm following is how, what are the limits of representation now? How does having um, historic diversity in the top levers of power impact politics and policy um, for communities of color? And so I would agree with everything that my colleagues have said, which is, yeah, this is absolutely a a critical time uh, for coverage of race and coverage of demographics. And I mean, I would take it even further and say that if if the if newsrooms charge and, and journalism's creed is to tell the truth and to state the facts, then 
reporting about race and the impact of these policies is part of that. And so we don't necessarily have to think too hard about this if we're still holding ourselves um, to the same journalistic standards that we've been saying that, you know, we would, we would like to see. And that means, of course, for our white colleagues who are on the White House beat, who are on the Congress beat, not just relegating these stories about race and policy um, to your colleagues of color, because this is your beat too. This is part of mm -hmm. the story um, that everyone is telling. And if there is some discomfort, I mean, give the people who are telling these stories, who have made this their, their, their life's work, the support that they need within newsrooms to be able to do that um, as effectively as possible. And, you know, that's, that's the biggest, um, the biggest takeaway that, that I would have here is just that I think that more newsrooms now understand the value and importance of covering race and politics. Now, um, the challenge, of course, is figuring out how to do that the right way. And that's what we'll be, we'll, we'll, that's what we'll be seeing, too, as we continue to follow this story of race and politics from a, a political standpoint. How are newsrooms going to evolve to make sure that this is also done correctly? This has been fantastic. Thank you guys so much for coming on and, and talking through this with me. Well, thank you for including Thanks, Amy. allowing us to gather together because we don't get to do this nearly enough in the pandemic. I know. Someday, someday soon, we will be in person. Bar. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Aaron Haynes, co-founder and editor-at-large for the 19th. Tolu Olunaripa, national political reporter for The Washington Post. And Maya King, political reporter at Politico. Over the course of the 2020 campaign, we talked to a lot of big-name elected and appointed officials. Eric Holder. Scott Walker. Chuck Hagel. Susan Rice. Andy Card. This is John Kerry. Julian Castro. Ro Khanna. Senator Bernie Sanders. Gretchen Whitmer, governor of Michigan. But to me, the most consequential figures of 2020 were people most of the country had never heard of before. My name is Damon Sircasta. I'm chair of the North Carolina State Board of Elections. Katie Hobbs, Arizona Secretary of State as well as some of the regular folks who volunteered their time to make a difference. My name is Evan Wayne Malbro. I am the founder and executive director of the Georgia Youth Poll Worker Project. I interviewed Chairman Sircosta, Evan Marlboro, and Secretary Hobbs back in the fall. Between the pandemic and President Trump's attacks on vote-by-mail, it was clear that the once sleepy domain of election administration was going to be critical. But even then, we didn't appreciate the kind of pressure many of these election officials would face in the days after the election had ended. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. In the span of a few months, their jobs went from relative obscurity to front and center. We take pride in not being part of the story, uh, but with the pandemic, uh, the misinformation, the uncertainty that exists in society, uh, we became part of the story. Uh, it was hard on a personal level. Uh, it was challenging for all of our staff. Elections are very complicated, um, and it takes a lot to ensure that we're upholding democracy and it takes partnership. Um, and we really worked to invest in that partnership early, um, which paid off 
um, as we were facing three elections in 2020 during a global pandemic. The election, it was a lot, right? Because the election required the United States in general, not just Georgia, to create new systems to adjust to the virus when new system change isn't really the norm in our government and in our election system, right? We had to train thousands of new poll workers to work the polls and rely on our training rather than the 30-year experience that we were relying on. As voting officials attempted to run smooth and fair elections, they also had to combat the nonstop spread of misinformation, much of which was instigated by former President Trump. There's no doubt that all of the misinformation made our jobs harder, but it gave us all more resolve. I think the one thing you'd see in the election administration community uh, throughout the state of North Carolina and throughout the country is our job uh, doubled. It used to be we had to conduct a flawless election and we were able to do that. Now we have to conduct a flawless election and make sure our fellow citizens understand how we went about doing that. It was frustrating to say the least, but I think that what how I operated throughout that was really just focusing on the fact that we're doing our jobs in spite of all of this. And in spite of all of this misinformation, we had unprecedented voter turnout in this election and participation, and that's something to celebrate. I am 100% confident in the election that we conducted. The former president can say whatever he wants to. He's not right. During the 2020 election, there were moments when I was scared. Um, there were some situations. I remember one precinct calling me saying that there were people taking pictures of the poll workers' license plates um, at their precinct on election day. And even after a year like 2020, these individuals remain dedicated to administering future elections and safeguarding our democracy. There were concerns about the physical safety of our employees. There was concerns about the threats to our buildings. Uh, there was concern that we would see direct physical attacks on the very people whose job it is to make sure that everyone has a voice. Uh, it was scary. Uh, it was surreal at some points. Uh, but again, it made us feel all the more resolved to make sure we get this right. But if anything, 2020 taught us that we are very necessary, our work is very important, and that we're not going to let anybody stop us from doing it. Uh, the things that I'm most concerned about moving forward is that political actors will use this as a means to try and thwart various methods of voting. My office introduced a bill um, that's pretty comprehensive in terms of um, what we see as an agenda to improve elections in the state. And we've been working on this piece of legislation for the past year, really, as we move through the process of administering the election and all of the, the things that need to streamline election administration, to increase um, access to voting and to enhance election security. I am very concerned about the backlash, right? I, I forgot who said it, but they said all elections have consequences. And in Georgia, we're starting to see that. Uh, currently, the Georgia state legislator, which is a trifecta legislator, is um, seeking to pass seven bills that would severely hurt voting rights 
in the state of Georgia, right? We have bills that would um, ban no excuse absentee voting, bills proposed that would ban nonprofits from distributing absentee ballot applications to voters, right? You know, what we're starting to see is a surgical backlash against the high voter turnout we had because some did not like the results. It seems like Georgia will stay the center of the political universe. In November, the state flipped from red to blue for the first time in almost 30 years. And earlier this year, Democrats won both Senate seats. Last year, of course, then-President Trump spent a considerable amount of time trying to overturn the state's election results and on a phone call even pressured the Republican Secretary of State to, quote, fine votes that would reverse his loss. Gabriel Sterling is a Republican and the chief operating officer and chief financial officer for the office of the Georgia Secretary of State. Like the other election officials around the country, Sterling did not expect to become a household name. But on December 1st, his press conference rebutting many of the false accusations made by President Trump went viral. It has all gone too far. All of it. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. Stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt, someone's going to get shot, someone's going to get killed. And it's not right. I decided to check in with Gabriel Sterling this week to see how he's processing the election and his role in it. It was the biggest rollout of a voting system in United States history in a single location. Uh, and we have 159 counties that range in size from 1,500 voters to a million people. I mean, very differently resourced. And we have a centralized system, which is different from most states where counties end up purchase, purchasing systems that are just kind of approved by the state. The state actually bought everything. So we had a $150 million bond package to get this rolled out. And we had to do it all in really less than a year. <laughs> so it was 33,000 ballot marking devices, over 3,000 big scanners, 8,000 poll pads for check-in and, tr- and train and help recruit thousands of poll workers around the state. And then, and then a pandemic a, hit. A pandemic hits, <laughs> right. So, right. So we didn't have to rejigger some of our resources and focus on what could we do to keep people safe and run a good election at the same time. In June, we had some hiccups, but really only in one county. Most of the state executed really well. We rolled out the um, uh, an absentee ballot program that was based on the fact that Georgia has a no-excuse absentee ballot request system that was passed and signed by Republicans in 2005. And we leveraged that as best we could and got over a million people to vote that way in the primary. Uh, Fulton County was the, the state's largest county, had some real challenges and some issues, and they did a not a great job of recruiting and training. Now, in all fairness, they lost a lot of locations. They lost a lot of people. And the average age of a poll worker in Georgia was about 70 or 70 mm-hmm. plus. So we lost a lot of institutional knowledge because they were obviously the most at risk for COVID. It's not always about the technology. It's about what do you do when something weird happens? Most of these people who have been doing it for two and three and four and 10 cycles, they knew what to do. Somebody walks in without an ID. You give them a provisional ballot. This is how you handle that. Someone wants to cancel an absentee ballot. You got to call the headquarters. But when you have a bunch of new people who literally Fulton County recruited on the Friday before the election, they put out a call for 250 workers <laughs> and, then, and it was no time to train. And they really, they, they hit the wall pretty hard. And yet, after all that, mm-hmm. right, 
on November 3rd, things went really well. Oh, this was a historically well-functioning election. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people expected some of those same hiccups, right? We're going to see long lines. We're going to see complaints. We're going to hear from local officials. Oh, my gosh, we lost all these poll workers or the whole, you know, the system has crashed. None of that happened, right? And so at what point did you realize that the election system was going to be the center of Donald Trump's universe. Okay, well, on the evening of November 3rd, I was in victory lap mode because like we slayed the dragon of long lines. Like you said, we didn't have all those complaints. We didn't have those issues. The results were coming in relatively quickly and we told everybody for days, it's going to be a couple of days because this mm-hmm. could be a close race. On the afternoon of November 4th, since I had grown up in Georgia politics and I kind of knew where things were and where boats were, I, I called everybody together and said, look, we're about to have some issues. I'm like, what do you mean? I said, Trump's going to lose by about 10,000 votes. I was off by 2,000 because I just saw what was out still. And I said, we got to get prepared for this. And I said, I don't know what that is. I don't have any idea what that's going to look like. But the funny part was ballots kept coming in and we did more things. We did the hand tally. And both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign for the first seven, eight days really didn't know what to say because there was a possibility either one of them could have pulled off winning and they couldn't attack the system Mm. if they were going to (laughs) win. So... Once it was obvious that the president had lost, then the bottom sort of fell out. And then we were all sort of shocked and surprised, including the two Senate candidates, two senators own staffs when they called for the for the secretary's resignation. And when they did that, that was the day the death threat started. The death threats against you. Um, I was probably the day after that, but they were definitely against the secretary and his wife. That that I mean that very evening they, they began. I have to assume that this is nothing that you were prepared for or that you had seen even after spending all of these years in politics. No, you don't, you don't expect that. But once it started, again, I, I've, I've said this on other interviews, the secretary ran. His wife knew he ran. I put myself in the public way out there on television. So as much as it's terrible to say, you can't really whine about it. It's just, this is the, the, the nature of the discourse, which is terrible, but it's there. So you kind of expect that at some level this happens in the social media, crazy, mixed up world. But what happened when I kind of lost it on December 1st was that a young man who had simply taken an IT job, a contractor for our our Dominion voting system contractor, when they got his name and his, it was a unique name. I think he was a first generation American and they started harassing him and his family, giving him death threats. And I saw on Twitter, they had the young man's name. And it said, you've committed treason. May God have mercy on your soul. It had a slowly moving gif of a noose. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I want to get us back to then sort of solving this challenge, right? As you, you've you been very good at pointing out the frustration that you have when nobody believes in this system. And so we now are in Georgia. The legislature is back in session and there are a lot of bills out there that may or may not actually come to be law to, to, to make changes to the voting system. So from your perspective, as somebody who was closer to this than almost anybody else, what do you think needs to be changed? And as you're seeing these laws get introduced, what do you think? Eh, we don't really need to go there. So some of them are red meat for their base. Mm-hmm. And some of these 
men and women introducing them, no, they will never go anywhere. But they can always go back to their, you know, their Republican county breakfast and say, hey, I introduced this bill to do this great thing we need to do to protect mm-hmm. our system. There's lots of things in election administration that can get done to make things better and help counties and restore confidence. Because the real problem we have now, a lot of election administration things that are just like, t- that f- may feel ticky tacky, but really help. Uh, like, as an example, we don't have an absentee ballot application deadline in the state. This doesn't exist. There's a de facto one, but it doesn't work. And what we want to do is make about 10 days out or 11 days out because it's the Friday mm-hmm. out before the Tuesday election. So if you really want to make election administration easier for the counties and make sure those people retain the franchise, putting an ap- absentee ballot application deadline in is a great thing to do because then you don't have people saying, I never got my absentee ballot. I didn't get there because at that point you still have a full other week of early voting because in Georgia we have three weeks plus a mandated Saturday of early voting. The one thing that even the Secretary of State has said to um, endorse is to limit no excuse absentee voting to just those who are 75 and older or, you know, have a have a real valid medical excuse. As you pointed out, this has been in place since 2005, this no excuse absentee voting. So do you think like literally rolling that back to to just you have to be an older person or a disabled person in some way. Do you think that's the answer? I don't know that that's the answer in and of itself. You ha- what you have to do is understand there's a lot of people who have a lot of lack of faith because even the Carter Center has said absentee ballots are the one area where we have the least amount of security. And the other thing that we see with that as an example, and it's not apocryphal, but this is real things that happen. We all know they've happened over the years. Um, if you get an absentee ballot, when, when you go to vote in person, you're showing your ID. Yes, this is you. You go onto a booth. People can make sure there's nobody intimidating you. If you get an absentee ballot. We've all heard stories where the sheriff comes to work. Hey, I saw you got that big, bright yellow absentee ballot. Maybe we can help you fill that out. The way we have historically voted in Georgia, absentee ballot is about 5% and in person is about 95%. I think we're going to fall back to a 10 or 15% level of absentee voting just because of some changes due to the pandemic and people seeing how easy it is. I don't know what will happen at the end of the day when it comes to what the legislature does on no excuse. As because in, you guys spent so much time. You did, the secretary mm-hmm. did, on pushing back on the president and others who are spreading these stories about, you know, signature match. And you guys kept saying, look, we've done the work. We have all of the receipts here. Nothing <laughs> happened. Literally. Literally and figuratively, like you had to talk about that all the time. So it seems like you have already proven that it actually works. And I I guess another another thing we can do, another thing we can do that undermines people's confidence is signature match because it is subjective. They believe that people have different political beliefs than them will allow signatures to go through because of where they are. So we, one of the things I think we absolutely need to do is move to a voter ID, but based not on a picture that you mail to somebody, but fill in your driver's license number. Drivers, we have a driver's license number attached to 97% of our, of our voting records. Driver's license number and birthday, those are unique identifiers. You either got the number or you don't. And for those who don't have a driver's license or state ID, we have 99.9% of people with their social security numbers in, in our voting records. One final question for you going forward as somebody who's been involved in this for so long in politics in this state and after what you had to go through, um, are you going to stay involved? Are, are, are you sticking around? 
uh, with the Secretary of State's office? And are you optimistic at all about what the next few years holds? Yeah, I'm going to stick around the Secretary of State's office for at least a while. right? And in fact, right now I'm sitting in Macon, Georgia, trying to work on fixing licensing in this state to make sure people who want to follow a career path have the ability to do it as quickly and cleanly as possible while protecting the health and safety of Georgians. You know, my work is supposed to be a functionary to make government work, but I'm never going to walk away from my party. I will continue to fight for the sanity and sanctity of this party with, with my dying breath, probably. Gabriel Sterling is the chief operating officer and chief financial officer for the office of the Georgia Secretary of State. Insulating our democracy and our elections in particular from the threat of misinformation is not a new phenomenon. In 2016, we learned how easily social media could be manipulated by foreign actors. In 2020, things shifted. Sure, there were still attempts by foreign actors to undermine democracy, but the most incendiary lies were coming from the White House, where Donald Trump continued to stoke the false narrative that the election was stolen from him. And we watched as the social media platform struggled to meet this moment with appropriate action. This week, I caught up with Suzanne Spaulding, senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We talked about how prepared the social media networks and other institutions were to combat misinformation related to the election in 2020 and how that compared to 2016. We are all susceptible to that inclination to fight the last war, right? And so the work that the platforms did on identifying inauthentic accounts and identifying foreign uh, users pretending to be Americans and, and as you say, that foreign threat um, really did not prepare them for what we ultimately confronted, which as you say, is not just uh, domestic voices throughout the country, but really the loudest megaphone coming from the president himself in the White House. And and that is a really tough issue. And uh, I am sympathetic with uh, the, you know, kind of agonizing decision-making that the platforms, you know, had to go through in, in determining how to address this. Um, but I, but again, I think they we needed to see more alacrity, and I certainly hope that going forward, uh, they are n- again not just institutionalizing the lessons learned from this most recent election, but doing a better job of trying to anticipate where things will go next. You know, one thing we heard a lot about, even after the horrific attack on the Capitol on January sixth was that our guardrails, our constitutional guardrails ended up holding. Do you feel confident uh, on this, the guardrails held argument? I, I think it, uh, the bottom line is yes. You know, it was, it was uh, I often said it was my fervent uh, prayer, daily prayer uh, over the last four years that when, when this uh, was over, that we would be able to say that the, that the system ultimately held and worked. And, and I think that's true. I don't think it's over yet. Uh, so I think it's, you know, maybe premature to go, but certainly we should not go, go to toward complacency about the strength of our institutions. I think uh, they held, but I would say barely. And I say that because while the courts, uh, you know, held to the rule of law, uh, the legitimacy of those decisions was clearly not accepted, at least by the mob that stormed the Capitol, right? There were 60, over 60 cases that had uh, rejected challenges to the election and 
And and those folks who engaged in that insurrection clearly did not accord that legitimacy. So I think, again, we still have to be on our guard. We need to understand that while democracy is resilient, it's not invincible. And all of us continue to have a responsibility to do what we can to strengthen those institutions and our democracy. Well, that I, I'm glad you brought up the courts because I was going to go right to that. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, on stopping the spread of dis- disinformation that targets the public trust in our courts. So much of the venom, both the president and of his supporters, was focused on elected officials, right? The Secretary of State of Georgia, Mike Pence, rather than saying these judges are the problem, right? Our courts are complicit. Does this help you feel any better that maybe the integrity of the courts or the trust in the courts wasn't damaged as strongly as some of our other institutions? Well, it certainly uh, could have been, the damage certainly could have been much worse um, had the president uh, thought to go after individual judges or the courts. Um, We certainly saw uh, and heard from some of those, again, engaged in the January 6th efforts and then, uh, you know, others online over the last several weeks, um, attacks, for example, on the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, you know, verbal attacks uh, on his credibility and legitimacy. Um, so I think it continues to be a concern. And, uh, you know, as I say, there was n- not a recognition that these judges in these courts had made these rulings and they needed to be abided by and, and respected. Uh, So I think, again, implicit in the insurrection was a disregard of the legitimacy uh, of the courts. President Trump may have felt somewhat constrained once he learned that some of those judges were judges he himself had appointed. Though he had no problem trashing legislators who he at one point had endorsed, too, right? So, but but uh, I take your point, which is if, if you don't trust the legislative process, and you don't trust the electoral college process and the institution of voting, then you're also not trusting that the courts are there to help keep this process from being um, completely undermined. And one of the most pernicious you know, effects of delegitimizing the courts it's a, it's akin to delegitimizing the media, right? Those are two sources of information, sources of facts. If you will, the courts are kind of arbiters of the truth. And if we no longer trust the courts uh, and the legitimacy of what they find, uh, it hastens our slide toward that post-truth world. How long and how permanent do you think the damage that Trump did uh, about spreading misinformation about election integrity lasts? I worry that it, it, it will be quite long lasting. Tearing down trust is certainly much easier than, than rebuilding trust. And that's what we now have to do is we've got to strengthen the trust in our institutions. And that's going to be a challenge. The institutions are going to have to work hard at it. They're going to have to increase their transparency. They're going to have to explain and strengthen the mechanisms for accountability uh, that we have in place. 
and then we need to help educate Americans about the role that they play in holding these institutions accountable for living up to our aspirations. And that too can help to rebuild trust. I think we need to reinvigorate civics education in this country. I think we need a year of civic renewal where all across the country, communities are engaged in efforts as we hopefully come out of the isolation of COVID uh, and in the aftermath of this incredibly divisive time to rebuild a sense of community identity, of civic identity, of, of shared values that can be a starting point for regaining some ability to mobilize to meet the challenges that we face. Well, Suzanne Spaulding, this has been a real pleasure to speak with you again. Um, thank you for your insight and also for your hope. Well, Amy, thank you for all that you have done to help inform and engage uh, the discourse in this country. And I wish you all the best going forward. Suzanne Spaulding is a senior advisor for Homeland Security and director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. One more thing for me today. In the midst of all the crazy and the chaos, all the ways in which the loudest voices try to take up all the political oxygen, there were those who stood out this last year precisely because they weren't any of those things. They were steady and calm and they sought to illuminate, not gaslight. The local election officials who stood up to the most powerful person on the planet, the black reporters, many of them just starting out their journalism careers, who called out the truth about race that's been conveniently buried for too many years. Look, it's easy to get disappointed and dispirited about this moment in American history. So instead, let's give a toast to those who are doing the right things. Those who are doing the work without clamoring for the limelight. Thank you. Thank you to all of those who stood up, even when it wasn't easy or celebrated or even noticed. And a bittersweet reminder, this is my penultimate show. You don't get to use that word penultimate very often, so it's kind of fun to be able to use it. All right. Next week will be the grand finale of Politics with Amy Walter. We've enjoyed making this show for you every week, and we will miss it immensely. But we got a good one to go out on, so make sure you come back for that. Tanzina Vega will be taking you into the weekend going forward after next week. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Amrungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Sham Sundra was our board op this week. Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Jay Cowett, our fearless director and sound designer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.